If we all work for the same Jira board, does that count as one stream of work? <laughs> <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of five to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them, but if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues Podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 275 of the Ruby Rogues Podcast. This week on our panel, we have Sam Livingston-Gray. We can't stop here. This is Bat Country. Jessica Kerr. Good morning. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Uh, quick shout out for railsremoteconf.com. Uh, we have a special guest this week, and that is James Shore. Hi, everyone. Do you want to give us a brief introduction? Sure. I'm a programmer. I've been uh, focusing on Agile methods since 1999. I got involved with extreme programming, had a lot of fun with it, and haven't looked back. Uh, these days, I work primarily as a consultant, helping the more entrepreneurial companies uh, figure out how to do this stuff well. Now, consultant is code for you get paid a lot and you don't work a lot, right? Uh, I put the con in consultant. Well, no, don't. don't, don't. <laughs> <laughs> con like Confidence. negative, right? Uh, I, maybe maybe we shouldn't say that on camera, but uh, yeah, yeah. What what it means is that uh, my dad tells a joke. He's he's really nice that way. A consultant, somebody who uh, uh, you ask them a time, they take your watch and tell you what time it is, and then keep the watch. So <laughs> I guess I'm not selling myself well here, but uh, that's the best I got. Oh, oh, but no, there's totally. So that is like when you go to a customer and you help them, but you also learn a ton from them. And then you take that knowledge and do even better at the next place and make even more money because you like gathered all the experience from your customers. You should totally do all my marketing. <laughs> that reminds me of uh, something my brother said about one of our grandfathers, which was that he's the sort of person who, if you ask him what time it is, he'll show you how the watch works. <laughs> nice. Mm. Yeah. Well, I have a whole show about uh, freelancing and consulting, so maybe we'll get you on there so you can show us how the con actually works. It's You know, it's good fun. It's good fun. Um, the nice thing about it is... I really get to set my own hours. The bad thing about it is I get to set my own hours and I have to do all my marketing and sales and all that stuff that as a programmer, I don't really enjoy. But uh, at its best, uh, it's a chance to really help people in a lot of different ways in a lot of different places. So, um, Do you think that doing your own marketing and sales helps you like empathize with the business as a whole better than you could when so. you were just a programmer? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, as a consultant running a solo shop, I'm a very, very small business. Uh, but it still gives me a lot of appreciation for skills that, you know, when I was just doing uh, programming work, I, it was pretty easy for me to poo-poo. You know, you, there's a lot of jokes out there in the programming world about, um, you know, marketing and sales not really being able to do much more than operate the coffee maker and how come there's no coffee today. 
But, As uh, if there would be any purpose to our job at all without marketing and sales. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's, it's given me a, a good understanding of what's out there, but also uh, sort of the limits of what marketing and sales can do as well. So, uh, yeah. Do you think that that's core to Agile, that broader understanding and appreciation of more skill sets? I don't. Th- I, I think it's core to what Agile is trying to achieve. I don't think everybody on an Agile team needs to have that. Uh, but absolutely, Agile at its best, and Agile is sort of this big umbrella term that it doesn't mean very much anymore because it, so many people have co-opted it. But uh, I think Agile at its best is about bringing all the different perspectives that are needed to ship high-quality, successful, valuable software, bringing all those perspectives together and having them work together effectively. So you, you mentioned, and we're, we're going to go a whole lot into Agile, I think, today, but um, you mentioned that co- Agile has kind of been co-opted into something else. Um, where do you think that's gone, and why do you think that that's um, you know, problematic or not problematic for people who are trying to do Agile? Um, hmm. Well, it's, I'd say, so I've been involved with this since 1999. It was, it was named Agile in 2001, which gives you a sense of how long I've been involved. Um, and back in the early days, it was mostly uh, programmers doing this grassroots effort to try to get past this, this what people were calling the software crisis, all, this, all these failed projects, uh, projects that were coming in late and not finishing what they were supposed to or what they had planned to. Now, that's a fairly peculiar definition of failure that doesn't involve anything about profit, <laughs> <laughs> which was one of the problems. Uh, but, uh, you know, in reaction to this failure, uh, companies had made increasingly bureaucratic, you know, binders full of software process that people had to follow. It was fairly dehumanizing and not a lot of fun to work in. So people got a bunch of folks, mostly programmers, some consultants got together and, and worked out came up with a lot of different alternatives to this called lightweight methods. Uh, extreme programming, Scrum, Alistair Coburn's uh, crystal methodologies, uh, which I'm pretty sure he named crystal methodologies on purpose. He did. I know Alistair. <laughs> oh, he did, totally. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, there's others, DSDM. And uh, well, I've completely derailed myself. What was I saying? Lightweight methodologies. Right. As a reaction uh, to heavyweight stuff that came before, explosion yeah. of light lightweight methodologies, a dispersion even of techniques. Yeah, maybe we can cut out that actual diaspora. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so all these methods came out, and the the whole point was to make software development better and more effective, and that's where the Agile Manifesto came from. So in the beginning, it was very much a grassroots movement. You had advice like, hey, if people won't let you sit together, come in on the weekend and bring your screwdrivers and screw the furniture police. I tried that once. It did not make them happy. And, but it was, you know, we got, we got stuff done. And then around, I think, 2004, I don't remember exactly, uh, people were saying, you know, we're, this is an, a movement that is about bringing people together and we're not involving project managers enough. We're not involving uh, executives enough. And there was this huge, huge push to bring project management into the field, which succeeded. And the conferences started having more and more project managers, but it, it went too far in that that 
success pushed out the technical content and the programmers largely left. If you go to the big Agile conference, uh, this year is Agile 2016 in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah there's, there's not very much technical content anymore. In fact, I this year- I gave one of the very few technical talks, yeah. Yeah, well, thank you for that because it's necessary. <laughs> uh, in fact, they've actually, to try to bring the technical content back, they've, they've introduced a new conference, which is the Agile Alliance Technical Conference, which was in Raleigh, I believe, this year. And um, so the question was, to, to bring this long-winded answer to a close, the, the question was, is it good that Agile has been co-opted? Well, it's good that we've got all this participation, but it's bad in that the programmers who are really, this is software development. Agile works because we bring the, 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 the physical realities of software development to our methods. We say things like Conway's law matters. Conway's law, of course, is this, as the, it says that the structure of the organization reflects the structure of the code and vice versa. Uh, we say things like, uh, code quality matters and technical debt matters and testing matters. And without technical folks, without programmers involved in the process, then that gets left behind. And that's what you see in Agile today is that there is an ignorance of how the technology affects what you do. Yeah, and it's been my experience that even when there are people in the meetings saying that there's still, at least in some of the organizations I've worked in, there's still a strong uh, pressure to say, well, yes, we understand that all that stuff matters, but still give us a number and it has to keep going up over time. Yeah. yeah up, up and to the right. One of the yeah. most common questions I'm asked is, how can I get uh, my product owner to let me pay down technical debt? Which is not, which is the wrong question to be answering. The answer is moo. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't, don't. I love it. <laughs> don't let them you. Uh, don't Move let like them. Ooh. Yeah, maybe it's a mantra. Uh, but uh, <laughs> don't ask permission to pay down technical debt. That is part of your work, and you should always leave the code better than you found it. Agile does not work if you don't do that. No right. process will work if you don't do that. But that's been forgotten because there aren't enough programmers and other people with a technical bent involved in putting these things out. So obviously, I get I get pretty passionate about this. I think it's funny. It, the way you're talking about this reminds me of a video I saw a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I'll have to put a link to it in the show notes. But basically, um, there's this couple sitting on the couch. And she's, she looks at the, you know, the guy. And she's, she's like, I've just got this pain and this pressure right here. And then the camera angle changes. And there's a nail in the middle of her head. And, uh, you know, and he starts saying, well, maybe if you got the... And, you know, and she stops him. She's like, it's not about the nail. And it seems like um, a lot of this with Agile, they're so focused on the practices that they've forgotten the technology. In other words, they're so focused on the nail that they forget about the person. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's the same kind of thing. It's not, a, it's not about the nail. I mean, sure, if you remove the nail, it'd probably help. But it's, that's not what it's about. It's about the person. It's about the quality of the code we put out, the quality of technology that we can create, the the quality of, of life that we can create for the developers doing the work. Wait, it's it's not about the nail? Watch the video. Now Jessica looks like she has a nail in her forehead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You can link to that in the show notes. Uh, yeah, I'll have to find it. But yeah, it's on YouTube. So how do we fix this then? Is it as simple as, oh, let's bring in more technical folks? Or is there more to it than that? 
Well, I think there's a, a cynicism amongst programmers. I mean, you go on Reddit and or Hacker News, and any conversation about Agile will invariably have somebody come up and say, well, we did Agile, and it was the worst micromanagement, waste of time, spending all my time in meetings that I've ever experienced. Um, so it would be nice if people who have that attitude about how to make things better to you know, understand what Agile is really meant to be and, and help fix it. But um, ultimately, this is something... Although it's it's too bad Agile has become so popular, it's been sort of taken over by this project management mentality, it's also meant that it's spread. And in many ways, uh, what happens is when people work in this way, they, they get this sort of, you know, rush from having more control and more visibility about what's going on. And then after a couple of years, their code base dies because they haven't been paying attention to it. <laughs> but... You know, it's easy to laugh about it. It's not so much fun for the people in, involved. But, but that's not really I, I a fault because of Agile because if, if they were in any other process, their code base would still die after two years Yeah, when they're not or, taking care of it. Exactly, or three or, or, or whatever. But what happens in most cases is people say, oh, well, we really like this Agile stuff. Now we need to figure out how to do the technical practices. And it would have been great if they'd been doing that from the beginning. But it actually brings in the stuff that they need to learn. This is part of something that Diana Larson and I created called the Agile Fluency Model, actually, um, which I can talk about more if you're interested. Yeah, I found that really uh, interesting and useful when I saw it. I can go a couple ways with this. Um, There's pieces of Agile that don't belong to programmers, that are bigger than software development, that are about people working together like that appreciation of all the skills involved and the, the learning cycles. In my opinion, the one core practice to Agile is the retro, is reflecting on how we've worked, deciding on an experiment for the next piece of time, and then asking whether that helped, and iterating on our process of iteration. Absolutely, yeah. And that can apply anywhere. But the technical practices still need to happen if you're in software. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think the most important, well, there's, I wouldn't say there's, it's the most important thing. There's lots of things that I think are really important and agile. You know, the focus on people over bureaucracy is one of them. They call it people over process. But, um, and, and the emphasis on the way people interact, I think, is super important as well. But, and interestingly, retrospectives weren't actually in any of the early agile methods. But the idea of continuous learning, I think, is super important, and retrospectives is one of the most effective ways of doing it if you actually follow up on your retrospectives, which a lot of people don't. But um, there, right. there are some things that are, are very difficult to iterate towards. Uh, retrospectives and other continuous improvement, Kaizen improvements, we call them, uh, tend to get you better at what you already know how to do. But there's some things to do that a good, a really high-performing Agile team does that folks that aren't an iteration of their existing practices. For example, if you've never heard of test-driven development, you're not going to iterate your way towards test-driven development. What you're going to do is iterate towards more and more uh, effective communication with your QA department. But you're not going to create test-driven development of whole cloth. And there's a lot of stuff like that in Agile, particularly in the technical side, although it also exists in the other aspects of Agile as well, that fall into that category. And that's, uh, that's what I would like to see people 
remember more about. Uh, one of them, for example, is evolutionary design, which hardly anybody ever talks about, but is one of my very favorite uh, agile practices. Can you go into what that is? Because I'm not sure what it is. Yeah, I'm curious. I was about to bring up something about evolutionary algorithms and hill climbing, but that sounds like an even more interesting tangent. Uh, well, you could, I think what some of the fallacies of hill climb or things that can go wrong with evolutionary algorithms can also go wrong with evolutionary design. So I'd love to go there. Uh, in a nutshell, um, evolutionary design, can I, do you mind if I go off on a, a tangent for a moment? Go for it. Please do. Uh, yeah, I was talking to Ward Cunningham because he's, he lives here in Portland as well. And um, he was telling me about his definition of technical debt which for a long time I was confused by because he uses a different definition of technical debt than what I typically hear. He says that technical debt is what you deliberately leave out. It's not bad code or not code that needs to be cleaning. It's the stuff that you've deliberately left out of your code. And what we call technical debt, you know, just the bad code, he calls sloppy programming or sloppy coding. <laughs> he, says, he says, don't do that. <laughs> Which, you know, I've, I have a lot of, I, I like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, as he was explaining this to me, he said, I said, well, why would you want to deliberately take on technical debt? We said, it's not sloppy coding. It's this deliberately leaving stuff out. Uh, you may have heard the phrase Yagnet. You aren't going to need it. Yep. Uh, that was one of the big uh, catchphrases of extreme programming in the early days. Uh, this is the idea that we're only going to build code for what we need to do today. Uh, we're only going to solve the problem we have in front of us. We're not going to anticipate the future, which is is really hard to do because as we look at our architecture and our design, we can say we're going to have a performance problem here. We're going to need to scale here, and we're going to build in hooks to make that possible. Well, Yagni and Ward's definition of technical debt says to get out faster, deliberately take on that debt and don't build those things. Evolutionary design is how you get from not having those things to having them without rewriting your entire system. It's a series of refactorings, gradual refactorings to improve the quality of design in your code so that you don't have to build the world. So you can ship with a third of what you need because you're only delivering a third of your product right now. Uh, so it's very tied in with minimum viable product, the lean startup ideas. Eric Reese, who you know created Lean Startup, uh, was doing extreme programming. I'm going to stop you for a second, Jim. Your sound's getting worse. Yeah, the sound got wacko. Okay, uh, let me turn off my video. It's doing that robot thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's is probably a the video. Try again. Let me, uh, let's see, how do I turn off your video? Oh, it That's sounds okay. better already. It's better. better, you sound way better. It's probably yeah. just upstream. Okay. Um, I'll just keep my video off then. Where would you like me to pick up? Uh Oh, hold on. Evolutionary design is how you get from here to where you need to be without rewriting the system. Uh, uh, I don't remember where you were, but I remember what my next question is. <laughs> but, uh, That's all that matters, really. Real quick, do you want me to... I've been sort of giving long-winded answers. Do you want me to make them shorter and more to the point? Um, I think they've been pretty good I'm so learning far. Stuff. I don't know. I, I'm good. I mean, I think... Uh, yeah. Never mind. Go ahead. Okay, um, so let me just pick up from from evolutionary design is how you get from here to there. Uh, let's see, what was I saying? You were into Yagni. Oh yeah. Well, I, I 
Hopefully you got all that. I don't yeah. think I can repeat it. Um, I'll just say, uh, so evolutionary design is how you get from your one-third product and one-third code base or even one-quarter code base or one-fifth code base. You know, the less code you write, the better, right? Because the less time you spend and the less bugs there are and, and, and the more you can get out quickly. Eric Ries, who founded uh, Lean Startup, was a big extreme programming person. And his ideas of continuous deployment and minimum viable product are very much a natural evolution of this evolutionary design and Yagni ideas. I think it's very important, one of the most powerful ideas uh, on the technical side in extreme programming. But because it's so difficult to see without a big example, it's almost never taught. Oh, oh, yeah, that's a trick. Question, does evolutionary design begin while you're writing that MVP, that one-third to one-fifth? It begins with the first line of code. The very first line of code you write, I always start out with a hello world. Let's say I'm doing a software as a service application. First thing I do is a build script, a real build script that says, that generates a web page that says hello world. And it's done in about 10 minutes because, you know, it's hello world. Uh, and then the next thing I do is that hello world web page is now served by a server. And I evolve that code from having just an index.html to now having a server. And then from there, I stretch it out a little bit more and stretch it out a little bit more. Uh, so I'm doing evolutionary because I, I've, I was really skeptical about evolutionary design at the beginning, but now I'm totally sold. So I do it on everything. I generally don't think ahead more than about 10 minutes. So you talked earlier about um, practices in Agile that you can't iterate your way towards, and we sort of mentioned the idea of hill climbing and local maxima. Um, are there things that evolutionary design will uh, fall flat on? Yes. Yes, I think so. There's a famous example, sort of unfortunately, that Ron Jeffries tried to uh, use test-driven development to write a Sudoku application, but uh, a Sudoku solver. And if you search Ron Jeffries' Sudoku uh, you'll find it. Ron Jeffries, for those of you who don't know, uh, is one of the creators of extreme programming. He didn't, he didn't have the background to do the sort of uh, simple AI that's required to do Sudoku solving. Uh, so he didn't get anywhere. He, he evolved into a very low local maxima. Uh, somebody else, I don't remember the name of the person who's uh, very versed in these sort of AI solving problems, Knew the, knew the problem well, came along, did it completely different, and had a much bigger success. So uh, I say I don't list, look ahead more than 10 minutes, and maybe that's an exaggeration, maybe it's an hour, <laughs> but I do have experience with the problems, the types of problems I solve that allow me to avoid traps, you know? So that's, that's something <laughs> that you have to be careful about. <laughs> so, I, so, so the... It's very easy for us to talk about don't look ahead more than 10 minutes when the fact is, by virtue of our previous experience, we are already seeing months into the future without even thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great way of looking at it. Uh, I, I don't know that evolutionary design is something that a junior programmer, somebody without a lot of experience, can do successfully. I suspect they can do it as successfully as they can do upfront design because they, at least they're getting the feedback from the code. But it's still, you know, you still have to have that experience to do good design. 
Um, and when I'm doing evolutionary design, I have all these ideas about where the design might go, but I don't commit myself to them. I say, I think this could happen, and I'm going to wait to let the code tell me what's going to happen. And as a result, I come up with some really interesting designs because I'm leaving myself open for experimentation, waiting to see what the features need, which determines the code I write, which determines what my design's going to be, rather than the other way around, which is usually features design code. It's funny that you mentioned that because... Uh... As a hobby, for many years, I have written fiction, and that's kind of the way that I write fiction. I generally know where I'm going to wind up, but I have no idea what the next step is. And so when I'm writing that part of the story, I write that part of the story, and then the next part of the story kind of flows out of that. It's, it's interesting you mentioned that. Uh, I, that's a great analogy. You know, you hear about authors saying, oh, I love being surprised by my characters, and uh, I love being surprised by my code. You know, I love learning how the design can evolve in ways that I didn't expect. But you've encountered negative surprises in the past, so you know how to avoid those. What I've, I would say that it's more accurate to say that I've learned how I can paint myself into a corner, and usually I paint myself in a corner by writing too much code. So I've become more and more confident about not writing the code that will paint me, paint me into a corner, saying, I'm not going to need it. I'll wait for that to happen. Um, your viewers might be interested in, or your listeners might be interested in a video I put together years ago for the Norwegian Development Conference called Evolutionary Design Illustrated, where I took several code bases, some of which I'd done live on camera uh, at, and checked in every 15 minutes. I took that, that code base and I, I created an animation that showed how the code base evolved over time, uh, which uh, demonstrates, you know, it was only 100 episode, so it was only 25 hours of work, but or maybe it was 50. Um, but it still shows you know, the early days of what evolutionary design can look at when you, like, when you really push it. Yeah, I've seen some uh, visualizations of how like, uh, object graphs change over time. Those can be really, really fascinating to watch. Sounds very cool. Yeah, I wish there was a tool that did this for me automatically, because that would be just awesome to run that on a big code base and see see how that uh, changed over time. We'll inspire one of our listeners to write that for you. Yeah, please do, mysterious listener. <laughs> <laughs> and let me know when you finish it. There's this great animation tool uh, that you've probably seen it animate the, the Linux code base, where it shows how files are added over time, and there's all these people sort of flying around and lasers uh, coming out of their heads as they, they make files appear. Um, but it only operates at the level of file. I'd love to see something that showed the classes and, and methods and stuff in a system. I think I saw something like that. Somebody took the uh, code base for my, I think, like a Git website and ran it through a tool that did uh, essentially a, um, a big graph showing each of the classes and how they interacted with each other. And, and they, did, they ran that commit by commit and used that to build the frames of the animation. It was really cool. I'll see if I can find it later. You talked about... Um Novice programmers probably aren't ready to do evolutionary design. What can you do when you're learning that will help you help you explore and get those pleasant surprises without um, without despair? Hmm. Well, I don't know that evolutionary design isn't appropriate for beginners. Um, depends on how beginner you're talking about. You know, I was working with somebody recently that 
and and they were they were sort of struggling with how do I become more proficient? And so I said, let's pair together and and I'll see what's going on and then I can give you some feedback. And what I saw him do was something that I think a lot of beginners do, but I didn't realize was not obvious. Um, and that was that he solved problems by looking up recipes on Stack Overflow. And I think a lot of beginners do this. He, he Whenever he ran into a problem, he typed in his error message or whatever he was facing and into Stack Overflow and, and found a snippet and then would copy that snippet into the code base. Which so, is totally valid, and I do that as well. Yeah, it is totally valid. Um, but what he wasn't, what he, and this is, this is what I realized watching him, was he didn't have a mental model. He didn't have the ability oh. to predict what the code yeah. would do. Mm. Oh, uh, and, oh, and once you have that, it's totally fine to cut, cut and paste the syntax. Right. So my advice to him was, yes, you can absolutely do that, but you need to form a mental model. Before you run your code, you need to predict what it's going to do. And I showed him, he was working, in, in that case, he was working with CSS. So I showed him a Mozilla Developer Network, MDN, and said, everything you type in, I want you to read the MDN page on that and follow any link that you think might be relevant and read that too. And form, you know, understand what's happening before you do it and form that mental model. And that will get... I haven't talked to him since then. He hasn't talked to me. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe I've ruined a friendship. <laughs> but um, my theory is that that's he had sort of gotten to the point of advanced beginner. He'd been he's working as a programmer in a company. He's been there for about a year, and he's basically gotten as far as he can with that technique, the copy and paste technique. And my hope is that this will get him over that hurdle to having that mental model, and now being able to actually develop his knowledge in a completely different direction. So maybe that's the right tool for him to take up at this point in his journey. Yeah. Yeah. And design isn't even a question at this point, right. I would say. So that's why evolutionary design isn't, isn't appropriate for beginners, is if it's not appropriate. Because design is just not a question yet. I mean, design is about making code more understandable to humans. Computers don't care, right? But you have to have experience seeing how code can be, particularly your own code, can become very hard to understand before I think you can really appreciate what design's all about. And then once you have that appreciation, I think evolutionary design is a great way to practice it. I think it's easier than doing a predictive design, which is where you say, this is what I need to do, and here's the design I'm going to create to do it. Hmm. I tend to do some combination of this is where I want to get, uh, break that down into pieces, but then find a stepping stone, find something that maybe it's not like the cleanest, most direct path to where I want to go, which uh, is always a rewrite, right, or, or you think it is. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's a step that puts me a little closer in that direction and is individually useful and executable and runnable. And once I get to that stepping stone, I look around and is that still where I want to go? Because often I learn something that changes my direction. Yeah, and, and that's that's basically evolutionary design. You know, add in reflective design, which is where you look at the existing code and say, how is this designed and how can I improve it? And that's evolutionary design. Continuously paying attention to the code and reflecting on the existing design and how it can be improved and not rewriting. <laughs> Sounds very agile. Mm -hmm. 
Hey, uh, this is, you know, to bring us full circle, this is the kind of thing that I think because we don't have the technical practices front and center, they don't need to be the most important thing, maybe, but they definitely need to be as important as everything else. This is an example of technical practices that reflect the process model as well. Yes. Yeah. I think that's the real brilliance of Agile is that the technical practices reflect the social environment and the business environment, and the business practices reflect the social environment, the technical environment, and everything is connected. Yeah, and the technical practices, especially like we've been talking about evolutionary design, those enable you to work in a way that is more agile, that you, because you aren't planning ahead three months, you can shift your direction and decide, oh, we don't actually need that feature that we thought was all that important because we delivered something and we found out that the market doesn't actually care. Yeah, and it's also it also allows you to delete, deliver sooner because you're not building out all this infrastructure that isn't needed for what you're shipping right now. So that's the business environment. You know, they want uh, they want to see, especially in a startup environment, you want to see something tested out in the market soon because you might be wrong about market product market fit. And even if you're right, you need the money coming in. So if you are doing evolutionary design and not building more than you need, you can ship sooner. But it's also very cost-effective because when you guess wrong with predictive design, it's very hard to change your code. One other thing with Yagni in particular that I found as I was you know, learning that particular principle, and it was mainly taught to me by David Brady, who's a regular on the show, um, was that, that cr not only is it don't take the time to create it, but it was also that in many cases we found that because that code wasn't run routinely, you know, we built something in that was kind of a... Uh, placeholder or a connection point for something we hadn't built yet, it turned out that that's where our bug was. Yeah. And by the time you need it, it doesn't even work. Right. Yeah. Well, or, or no, even worse than that, it, it doesn't even work and it's causing problems for the stuff that's actually fully fleshed out. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure you've all seen, I mean, I've seen this myself uh, many times. Somebody's made a guess about where the design's going to go and they're wrong. Mm -hmm. But, yep. But you can't change it because its tendrils are all throughout your system, right? You've got it's a major refactoring effort to take this wrong idea out and and change and put in the right thing. I would if if you've got a problem you want to solve, let's say it's internationalization, which is something I've actually solved with evolutionary design. I would rather have no internationalization in the code at all than bad internationalization that doesn't work. Because having to rip out the bad internationalization code is going to be way more work than writing the good code. And then from an evolutionary design perspective, if I've got to deal with internationalization, I'll make sure, or I think I might, I'll make sure that my code's factored such that all my currencies are in one object and all my dates are in one object. And so I have a single point to put that stuff in when I need mm -hmm. it. And that's the kind of thing you learn over time because you've implemented internationalization before. So you know what got in your way then. So you know there's a hole that you just didn't fall into. Right. But I don't need to put the internationalization in. This is what I call uh, agile architecture. It's, you, you've got a million things you could refactor, right? There's always more refactoring to do than time to do it. So what do you choose to focus on? Well, the experienced developer says, I know that change will be most painful when internationalization comes along, if we don't have a single point of collection for data types. So I'm going to focus my refactoring efforts on improving that duplication. You don't write the internationalization. You just make yourself ready to put it in 
if it ever comes up, which it may not. You may decide that you're going to pivot and do something else and this code is going to go away. Right, because there's certain steps that, are, that aren't painful. It's not a lot of work and there are, uh, there's other value to having the currency in one object, for instance. Um, but there are other parts of internationalization that are really painful and those you're not going to put in initially. Yeah, the, uh, the project where we did internationalization using evolutionary design, we asked the customer, can we please have a story for internationalization, at least for Europe, because this is a problem. And she said, no. <laughs> I said, you're going to need this. And she said, no. And so I, and this was my first XP project. I said, okay, let's, this, this evolutionary design stuff, I think it's ridiculous. I don't think it's going to work, but other stuff I thought was ridiculous, like pair programming did work. So, all right, I'll try it. And so we didn't put it in. But what we did was we made sure, this was a web app, we made sure that there was one class in our entire application that loaded HTML templates from the hard drive. And so when it was time to internationalize those and localize them, we changed that one file. And it was four lines of code to look at the uh, location header and pick a different template based on, uh, on, the, uh, on the locale. One thing that I think is funny is that, again, I mean, um, we, we talked about, um, you know, evolutionary design and how it applies to fiction writing. And again, you know, there's, there are business strategies that are similar to this where um, if you read the book Procrastinate on Purpose, if you skip toward the end, there are five strategies and the fourth one is to procrastinate on purpose. And it's the same idea where it's, um, can I put this off? Is it going to hurt if I put it off? You know, when is the right time to do it? And the right time to do it is as late as possible where, it, you know, it doesn't cause a problem. And with this, then you can prioritize the things that then need to be done now or are more important than that thing because you can continue to put it off with no consequences. Absolutely. And this is what Ward Cunningham meant by technical debt when he coined the term. Technical debt is the stuff you've deliberately chosen to put off because you don't need it now. Interesting. Okay. So one other thing you talked about with um, when we were getting ready to come into the show is um, a lot of these practices, at least the way we've been talking about them are mostly on the scale of when I work on my project and I leave this stuff out, then I, um, you know, then I can pull it in later. And I'm curious, you know, how, how does that scale up to a team or, you know, cause, cause I mean, then, the, then you have all this communication overhead with all this stuff. Well, I think, uh, at the team level, it still works because, uh, these, these engineering practices were de designed at the team level. It doesn't scale so well at the, to the cross-team level, though. Um, that's what I call large-scale agile when you have interdependent teams. But at the team level, uh, we've got other practices, you know, continuous integration, collective ownership, um, pair programming or mob programming is popular these days, of, of getting everybody on the same page and resolving this. I mean, when you, when you have six people on a team and they're all doing their own stream of work, what you really have is six one-person teams. And, <laughs> yeah. and uh, that brings in a lot of communication challenges. Yeah. But if you're actually working with each other on everybody's, on, and everybody's working on all the code simultaneously or all the code they care about that week simultaneously, uh, then it becomes one stream of work and the communication issues go away. Um, this is where we get into sort of the overlap of the technical and the project management practices uh, because it's, it's really valuable to only have one 
real stream of work simultaneously. It makes things so much easier from a coordination perspective. If we all work for the same JIRA board, does that count as one stream of work? <laughs> Troll face. Uh, <laughs> or, or you know, if, if it works better if we're all on one team than all 200 developers in an enterprise uh, company should just all be on the same team, right? Oh, I wish we could. Wouldn't that be awesome? Uh, there, there's a company no. called Menlo. I was going to say. <laughs> well, it, I say it, would, it wouldn't it be awesome because if you could actually have 200 people working on the same thing, then you would get, and, and there wasn't the nine people making a baby in one month problem, which there right. totally is, which is why we can't do that. But if we didn't have that problem, that means we could do, uh, instead of doing 200 features in a year, we could do a feature every day and a half. Oh, that would, right. be, yeah, that would be interesting. So what you're saying is, is that if the overhead of a team didn't scale linearly or logarithmically, in other words, it was just constant, you know, whether you had nine people on your team or 200 people on your team. I'd be thrilled with linear or logarithmic because I'm pretty sure it's exponential. Uh, in fact, it is factorial. <laughs> yeah. See Metcalf's law. <laughs> I, I'm just saying, best case scenario, even if it's the others, it still goes up every time you add somebody. Yeah, that would be awesome. But no, we can't do that. Uh, and yeah, the, the maximum number of people on the team seems to be um, about 10 programmers if you're doing pairing, about six programmers if you're not. Um, Menlo Innovations got enough to 30 people on a team, uh, which is pretty hmm. impressive. Or 30 people on a project, they've got a sort of a 70-person company and team, which is a conversation for another time, I think. But they're doing some really interesting stuff that most people wouldn't sit still for. Uh, but yeah, once you get past about six programmers in a company, you need to start thinking about multiple teams. And this is where uh, large-scale Agile comes in. And I think there isn't enough, uh, enough of the conversation around large-scale or scaling Agile. Too much of that's sort of focused on the project management side of thing and not on the how do we technically get 12 people to coordinate. Now, I have to wonder because if it's between two teams and we have that coordination issue, it does seem like it comes down to communication. And I'm wondering how much of that is artificial communication barrier that we put up ourselves and how much of that is just the nature of the fact that we have two teams and there's not really a whole lot you can do to mitigate some of that. You know, that the way you phrase that reminds me of... Um, of essence, essential complexity and accidental complexity from uh, who's who's the guy who wrote Mythical Man Month? Fred Brooks. Oh yeah, yeah. Fred Brooks wrote an essay called No Silver Bullet, and he talked about essential complexity and accidental complexity. And essential complexity is is the challenge that's inherent to the problem, and accidental complexity is the challenge that's introduced by the way you solve the problem. So, for example, writing a uh, a software as a service app in C, or assembly, introduces some accidental complexity that goes away when you use, say, Ruby. But the essential complexity of solving the business problem is still there. So uh, when you have multiple teams, what I see is that t people tend to introduce a lot of accidental complexity. But there is still essential complexity. You still have just this challenge of, of how do you coordinate people. And... Um, there is one way that I see people introduce the most complexity, which I'd be happy to go into. Yeah, go for it. Um, 
thought I'd just let you get a word in edgewise. So <laughs> the, uh, the, um, the obvious thing to do when you've got a large system and you're programming, and let's say you've got, you know, uh, persistence, a uh, bunch of persistence database code, you've got a bunch of JavaScript UI code, you've got a bunch of uh, routing code. What are you going to do? How are you going to split that up? Well, you go work on the routing code, and I'll go work on the persistence code, and we'll talk later. Yeah, yeah. The typical thing to do is is we're as from architecturally, we're going to split this into layers, right? And then, divide it by by like in, by technological implementation detail task. Right, and that's that's a very good thing to do as a programmer, because unless you're using microservices. Communication between components is instantaneous <laughs> and perfect. Right. Uh, but uh, people don't have perfect and instantaneous communication. So when you split up your team, uh, now that you've got you know twelve programmers, you need to split it up into or six programmers, and they're all doing one person teams. And you say you're the front end person, you're the back end person, you're the you know you're the microservice person, you're the router person. When you do that. Uh, you now have maximized your communication links because every single feature has to talk, has to coordinate every single person, uh, every single specialty. So one of the things that uh, I think is, is good to do with a large-scale system is to divide according to full ownership teams, teams that can own some segment of the problem completely from end to end and then be cross-functional. Uh, and there's another piece of communication that's going on there because you are coordinating on, like, the code when you're both working on the JavaScript. And when you're both working on the Java, there's a, co there's a coordination point that is mediated by the code. So if your code is nice and clear, then that's a communication that can just happen, unlike what you were talking about with the requirement to every feature requires coordination from everybody, that, that kind of understand the objective communication has to happen person to person. You don't have a code as mediator there, and those design documents don't do it. Right, yeah. When you have people on separate teams, they tend not to look at each other's code. So how does the communication happen? Well, you, that's where you start seeing breakdowns. You know, that's where somebody says, oh, I thought it was going to work this way, but you did it that way. And also because when you have people split into lanes like that, somebody will get ahead just because it's impossible to balance the work perfectly. And they'll they'll jump ahead and they'll start speculating. Oh, I think this is going to come up next. And they'll get it wrong. And then they'll start having to go back to previous tasks because the other team is still working on the previous thing and they need something else. And now you're multitasking. And uh, before long, you're spending all your time just hopping from task to task to task, and your life sucks. So let's not do that, because so, that's not fun. So how do you manage the crossover? I mean, another example that comes to mind is, let's say that you're building a huge content system. So you have a content team and maybe a user management team. And so the crossover is authorship, right? Because there's an author or owner for each piece of content. So, so how do you manage that so that you don't have these communication issues? Well, you're going to. You you can't. That's where the essential complexity comes in. You can't prevent communication issues. What you can do, though, is design your system so that you have as many intra-team communication points as possible and as few inter-team communication points as possible. 
And uh, I actually have a video that just came out recently uh, that I did in Romania about this topic. Um, so maybe we can share a link that will go into more detail on this. But, yes, but the core, yeah, yeah, just the, drop it in the chat and it'll go into the show notes. Absolutely. Um, the core idea is to basically follow Conway's law, which is that I think we talked about this earlier, the mm-hmm. structure of the system, uh, tends to match the structure of the organization and vice versa. So how can we design our architecture and our code so that the people who have to communicate most are on the same team? That's interesting. So basically what you're saying is, is if we can simplify the way that the content system talks to the user system, then we can simplify the communication lines that happen, have to happen between the content team and the user's team. Or maybe half of the content people and half of the user people need to be on one team and the other half need to be on another team. So let's take the software as a system example. You could split it into a software as a service. Let's, you could split it into front end and back end. But let's say you've got a company, a startup, uh, been going well, they've got this, this code base, and the code base, in addition to having front end and back end, has the onboarding experience, which is sort of the front page and everything that you're not, you see when you're not logged in, and the actual app, which is what you see when you pay and you log in. You could split that into two teams, and what you're going to do is minimize the communication between those teams. Each one will have content people on it, but different kinds of content. Each one will have you know the 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 landing page experience might have might have an accountant or a salesperson or a marketing person on it. Um, they'll probably both have user experience designers. Now it gets complicated as you get bigger because you're going to start having shared services, right? And how do you manage that? And that's a big part of what you know I've been sort of trying to figure out because it's easy to say, oh, just split into full ownership teams, but how do you do that in in actuality? And I go into some of that in my video, but I'm, there's still a lot to learn here. And this is most of what I'm doing as a consultant these days is trying stuff out and learning from it. Right. Because it seems like there are always going to be things, especially as an organization gets larger that either multiple teams want to own or that nobody wants to own. Yeah. I, I recently worked with a company that had 42 <laughs> teams and, um, we did a before and after and before they had a diagram that had an exponential number of lines of communication between all those people. and uh, Or maybe it was factorial, as you mentioned, Sam. Actually, I, I have to correct myself on that. I, I was looking again at Metcalf's Law, and it turns out to be uh, N squared. Yeah, okay, so exponential. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Polynomial at any rate. Poly- polynomial. Um, it's to the end that's exponential, right? So... Uh, Anyway, they had these huge number of links. So we, we did this big effort where we were just re, redesigned in cooperation with the architects and lots of people in the company, uh, redesigned teams' responsibilities to minimize that. And we got it down to um, from dozens to maybe a dozen. Oh, wow. So how do you go about making that change? Do you Do you rearrange the teams, like you said, or... Does it involve refactoring the code or both? I mean, we keep talking about Conway's law, so it seems like the one will affect the other. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's I think that's one of the most important things that I would like the people working on scaling Agile to realize is it's not just a project management problem. Uh, it's not just how do you tell people what to do, which is unfortunately what a lot of these things are are uh, are focusing on. So um, the way I've done it so far is by 
working with a company to redefine teams and designs and and basically move code responsibilities around around between teams. It's fairly disruptive and and not a lot of fun for the people involved who are going through the change. Um, but it's over really quick. The team that I worked with that had the forty two teams, we started started our design work in January and we rolled out the change uh, at the end of April. So which is super fast. So it's not just a process management problem. It's also a technical architecture problem? And a change management problem. And a change management problem. At least when you're implementing this kind of thing. If you can grow into it, I don't think you're going to have the same sort of... If you can grow your company with the knowledge of needing to architect your system in this way, then I think it will be less of a problem. And I would love to learn how to evolve an organizational design in this direction, but I don't know how to do that yet. Yeah, when when Chuck asked, "How do you go about making that change?" I was uh, I was struck by the the fact that you can ask that question, you know, in terms of like, how do you physically rearrange the teams, um, but then also, how do you convince the organization and the and the executive layer that this is a change that needs to happen, and how do you get them to go along with it? So this is a question you can actually ask at quite a few different layers up and down the stack. Yeah, absolutely. And how do you get people to go along with it? Well, that's something I get to do as a consultant because I, when people hire you as a consultant, you have, there is, they're more willing to hear ideas that seem out there because they don't know you and they don't, you know, familiar right. with contempt. <laughs> and they're paying for you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, um, so there's, uh, there's that aspect of it. Um, uh, Michael Feathers said something in conversation the other day that, might be part of the answer to this. He said, gelling teams is hard. What if we do it more? Uh, what if instead of saying, that team gelled, don't touch it, we got good at gelling teams? As individuals and as an org, if, it were, if we acquired that skill, then we could evolve teams more. Yeah, that comes back to something that I've heard a couple people... and including you, I think, Jim, say, which is that if there's something that's difficult or painful, you should do it a lot more. Yeah, that was one of the early XP ideas. I think it may have came, come from Kent Beck. Um, when he was talking about continuous integration specifically, I think, uh, but really in all kinds of things. I'm, I'm a little skeptical about this one. And Everyone's skeptical <laughs> about it, which means that if it's right, it's a high-value surprise idea. Ooh, that is so true. You know, um, Menlo he Innovation. Said, Ooh, like a consultant. Very <laughs> <laughs> oh, take your pick. <laughs> well, that just went. Thing? What was that? that the opening joke. joke? Totally. Ooh, like a consultant. Um. You know, when when I hear an idea that I want to steal, that's that's when I say ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and what he's hearing is ching ching ching. <laughs> I know how this works. I have a whole show about freelancing. Right, right. The uh, so Menlo Innovations, which I mentioned earlier, they've got a seventy-person company that operates as a single team, and I think they're doing what you're talking about. Ah, I think so it's not they team. It's fluid teams. They reassign pairs. They have week-long pairs, which is also something I wouldn't have done. Uh, there's many things they do that I think are weird that they do successfully. So, you know, ooh, that's, uh, <laughs> let's look at that more. But, um, yeah, they, they, they have their project managers 
assign pairs with the goals of sharing knowledge. And uh, they effectively act as a single-person team because they're switching pairs every week and moving people around amongst, amongst all these projects. However, I was talking to the president or the CEO or, you know, head honcho there and uh, Rich Sheridan. He's got a book called Joy Inc., which I hear is good. I haven't read it myself, but it comes recommended. And um, he's saying they, they are about 70, 80 people and they're not growing any further because he's afraid that more growth will prevent their formula from working. Yeah, good call. And... Um, there is this number of, of people that, you know, people have this sort of natural limit of how many folks they can remember who they are and have positive social relationships with. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, what's the name of that? Dunbar that, number. Yeah, the Dunbar's number. Well, it depends on the person, but it ranges from about 150 to 250. And I think when you're looking at these large-scale systems, that is a key cutoff point. Uh, there's a company, uh, Gore, that makes Gore-Tec or mm-hmm. Gore-Tex, the waterproof fabric, um, they practice a flat flat organization. And whenever they pass more than 150 people in, an, in a building, they spin off a new building uh, because of Dunbar's number. So um, I think that would be another natural limit. You know, 12 is one natural limit, and then 150, or maybe even less, maybe 100 is another natural limit. I feel like 30 is another one along that uh, another sort of phase change uh, phase transition point along that continuum too but i have no research for that i think you're right because i was i was talking to rich about his company and i said okay you've got 70 people acting as a single team but how many people have you ever had on a single project because his company does outsource uh, product development mm-hmm. with an emphasis on on uh, you know user experience and and creating good social results um and he said 30 people. 30 people is the most he's ever had on a single one of his projects, even though he's got 70 people in the company. Two is an interesting one as well. So if, if you're... <laughs> yes. Seriously, seriously. Because all that communication is free uh, while it's just you. And as a developer starting out, if you can add one person to your project, you will learn a lot about coordination. That's true. Yeah, you can get away with not having a source control with one person. But (laughs) not saying you should. No, no. No, future me would hate past me. That's that's close enough to two people right there to need source control. You know, I, I believe I believe in the value of learning through failure. And as a beginner, not doing source control and then discovering the reason for it. Um Hopefully without a hard drive crash. You know, we've probably all written essays and lost our work. I think we're already there. You just, 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 <laughs> just do it. My computer ain't okay, my homework. I'll, I'll buy that. <laughs> yeah, if, if anybody listening to this is is not using source control, you know, go beg forgiveness and and start using source control. Yeah, let let us save you the headache. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's so much here. My head's gonna explode. <clears throat> Is there anything that we should sneak in here before we hit picks? I had a fun little tangent, but I can yield to somebody else. I vote for Sam Tangent. Sam Tangent. Sam Tangent. All right. So, Jim, you mentioned something about how, was it Menlo Designs you were talking about? Uh, Menlo Innovations is the name of the Menlo Innovations. Thank you. Um, So, you you mentioned how they are doing some things that seem really weird to you, but that they seem to work for them. So, maybe that's worth checking out. And that made me think of something that I read 
years and years ago about uh, an evolutionary hardware design um, problem that uh, somebody basically uh, set up an evolutionary algorithm to run on a set of uh, field programmable gate array chips. And the task was to um, differentiate between two different frequencies. Uh, and uh, one of the solutions that sort of came out of this process, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, it actually took advantage of a CPU that was close enough that the one of the chips could pick up the uh, clock frequency from the CPU. And it used that as a baseline to determine um, what the two other frequencies it was distinguishing between were. Uh, and the upshot from that, of course, was that uh, evolutionary designs uh, are really good at taking advantage of local quirks um, and uh, things that necessar can't necessarily be replicated. They depend a lot on the underlying materials. And so I wonder if there are things that work at Menlo Innovations that work because of the people who are there. And uh, maybe that's another part in why they might not want to necessarily scale because as you hire different people, the mix changes and maybe some of your practices that um, worked before stopped working because the people who upheld them left. I think that is absolutely true. Maybe not the specifics of Menlo, but right. the idea that uh, the when people, you get into advanced agile, you know, and they evolve their process and they evolve their process, they do retrospectives and actually pay attention and follow through on whatever changes they suggest they come up with a very different kind of process. And then often what happens is they take this out and they say, this is what works. But right. it's this is what worked in our context. And it can be really hard to know what that context was. Um, you know, you, you may have heard of the Spotify model, which is a model for scaling Agile. Uh, the Spotify folks are great because they know that they've, come up with this model through lots of, you know, emphasis on learning and change. And whenever they talk about the way they work, they make a point of saying, don't copy the model because that was what worked for us. What you need to copy <laughs> is the way we evolve, not the details of what our model is. So yeah, absolutely. Any highly developed process, agile or otherwise, is very much in context. And, um, it's it's meta. You've got to copy it on a meta level. Copy how they got there, not where they got to. And also, hired yeah. a certified scrum master. That's how they got there. Ah! No! <laughs> we made Speaking it so hiring, the episode. Uh, I, I want to comment on Sam's point about the Menlo Innovations process possibly only working for the people there. This is, in my opinion, not about the personalities and characteristics of those individuals that they came in with. It's about those people having been there, having been part of the system in the past, having been part of its evolution. It's about their shared experience that when, as a new person, you come in, you don't have those instincts yet. It doesn't matter if you hire people who seem just the same as you. They still don't have your in-context experiences, and it's participation in that system that is making that system work for them, not like some inherent person. Base. Yeah, you, you, you are so right. And in fact, if you're hiring people who are just like you, then you're missing out on an opportunity for lots and lots of new ideas uh, and new perspectives. But what I've noticed with teams, and I assume this is happening at Menlo, um, 
uh, Rich Sheridan had a talk at, at Agile India this year, uh, which is really fantastic. I recommend that that you follow, that you watch it. And maybe maybe I can find a link for us to put in the show notes. But um, uh, when you have a gelled team, what I've noticed is that when a new person comes onto the team, they get borgified. Like the rest of the team assimilates them and they come into the process and, and start following the culture of the team. And as long as you grow slow enough, the what you need is just people who are willing to be assimilated, not people who are just like you. Actually, my opinion, and I have no evidence on this whatsoever, but my opinion is you need people who are absolutely nothing like you who are at least willing to try and and participate wholly. Well, that's fully. what the Borg were all about. I mean, it was right there in, in the show. They were talking about, we will add your cultural and technological distinctiveness to our own. Yeah. So so, were, so that's yeah, that's the lesson. In addition to being a con sultan, I am also saying you should be assimilated. It's a really positive show here. <laughs> awesome. Well, I need to push us to picks because I have another show coming up. Um, but this has been really, really fascinating. Um, I'm going to go ahead and have Sam start us with picks. All right. Well, I was going to pick a couple of things from my uh, recent vacation, but uh, uh, then it looks worried. Oh, yeah. She's also muted. Yeah. I'm I'm unprepared. Okay. As usual. Uh, okay. Sam, go ahead and uh, share your pick. Sorry to interrupt. No worries. All right. So I actually was going to uh, pick a couple of things from my vacation last week, but as we were talking, uh, I was reminded of a few other things that now I'm going to pick instead. Uh, the first of those is um, a blog post uh, by Sandy Metz from. Uh, earlier this year, but it's talking about something that she put in a talk about two years ago called The Wrong Abstraction. And uh, I'll drop a link in the show notes. It's well worth reading, but uh, the gist of it is uh, something that she threw uh, on a slide uh, in one of her talks that like, I picked up on and a bunch of other people picked up on, and this sort of like became one of the Sandy memes, which is uh, duplication is far cheaper than the wrong abstraction. Uh, there's a lot to unpack in there. I'll let you read the, the blog post. It's really cool. Uh, the other thing I wanted to pick is uh, Tom Stewart, who we had on the show, um, had uh, uh, has apparently has a podcast, uh, a very occasional podcast that he calls Why Are Computers. Uh, it's a very regular thing, but after he was on our show, uh, James, the former uh, rogue, um, had a bit of a beef with him, and so they, they had a really interesting conversation that uh, came out of that, in which they wound up mostly agreeing, but in really interesting ways. Uh, and then they all, he also uh, more recently had uh, Sandy Metz and Katrina Owen on to talk about their book, 99 Bottles of OOP, which I will probably pick in a future episode, but I haven't gotten around to reading it yet. Uh, at any rate, uh, Why Are Computers? Uh, episodes 2 and 3 are the ones that I've listened to, and they're both really fascinating. And them's my picks. I'm I'm good. I can. Okay. I, I have a pick. Okay, Jessica, what are your picks? Okay, my pick today is Netstat. This is like a Unixy command line tool, and you can use it to find out what programming is. You can use it to find out what program is listening on what port. So the trick is you can't just type Netstat. You have to do Netstat dash dash listening dash dash programs, or Netstat dash LP if you want the abbreviation. So handy, though. There have been a few times where I've run into issues where it's like, why won't this start? And then it's like, oh, something else is on that port. What is it? Oh, I'll go kill that. 
Yeah, or or yesterday somebody gave me a link to their to a website that they wanted me to look at, and I was like, hmm, what program is running this? And so I like logged into the host that it was running on and did NetStat listening programs and found out that like where this is coming from, and I could use this internally to like trace routing. Like when I make this call, what code is executed so that I can like do a git blame on it and find out who to talk to to change it. Yeah, that's my pick. Jessica is now the server whisperer. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got a couple of picks here as well. Uh, the first one is, um, so we had a team building session as part of WoodBadge. I've talked about WoodBadge a couple of times uh, since I've been back, but um, one of the, a lot of the examples I used were from the movie Remember the Titans. So if you're looking at team building, especially where I mean, half the team is white and half the team is black, and this is right around when they're doing the um, the desegregation of the schools. And there's a lot of antagonism and hard feelings there. And just seeing how they progress into a well-working, um, you know, cohesive team and some of the issues that they have there, uh, there are a lot of parallels between that and programming teams or other groups of people. And so uh, I'm going to pick that movie. Um I think that's all I've really got today. Um, Jim, what are your picks? Uh, well, I've got two picks. Uh, I didn't get warned about this at all, but I, I've got two for you. The, um, the first one is that Agile, to, Agile India 2016 talk by Rich Sheridan uh, about what they do at Menlo. Uh, it's just fascinating. And my second one is a little-known book that I think need, deserves a lot more attention. It's called Liftoff. And it's by Diana Larson and Ainsley Knees. And it is, Diana Larson is one of the people who introduced retrospectives to the Agile movement. And liftoff is the other side of it. Retrospectives is what you do uh, as your project is going. And liftoff is what you do to get your, get your team off the ground. Uh, really great stuff about how do you charter teams and how do you get them all coordinating well and, and working together effectively. Uh, I think this book deserves a lot more attention. They, come, they recently came out with a second edition and is published by Pragmatic Press. Uh, highly, highly recommended. All right. Well, if people want to uh, follow up with you, find out what you're doing, hire you as a consultant, what do they do? <laughs> well, you can uh, reach me at jshore at jameshore.com. You can go to my website, jameshore.com, and see what a bad user experience designer I am. And um, I would love to, love to hear from folks. Let me, let me go ahead and just say, um, and I also have, of course, my screencast, which is letscodejavascript.com and some interesting open source code, uh, open source projects at github.com slash James Shore. Uh, probably the one that people would be most interested in is Quixote, the CSS unit integration testing tool, which uh, is me tilting at windmills, but actually works. So check that out. If you are doing anything with CSS, you can actually test drive your CSS. Mind blown. Okay. Awesome. 